As we think about the text of Ephesians this morning and our study in the book of Ephesians, I was struck this week as I, as I was doing some reading that the, the word riches is mentioned five times, the word grace 12 times, the word glory eight times, and then this idea of being full or filled six times. Um, there's all this talk throughout the book, like 30 times the, the idea of being in Christ or with Christ or through Christ. And, and it's just this overwhelming, uh, the infinite wealth that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believers are amazingly rich because of our relationship with Jesus. And so Ephesians is a book that is about Riches and fullness and blessing and the fullness that we have in one sense, uh, it's guaranteed to us. We'll get to that next week. But in another sense, we have not yet attained it fully. We're still awaiting delivery of the fullness of the blessings described here in this book. And so in some ways, we're, we're not unlike the Jews of old who were looking forward to something else, right? They were looking forward to a coming king who would come and reign over Israel. They were expecting a king who would come and deliver them from their enemies and establish an eternal kingdom on earth for them. And when their Messiah did come, he was not at all who they expected him to be. In fact, in John 1, 11, it says they rejected him. They refused to recognize him as their Messiah. And when Jesus stood before Pilate in John 19, they all cried out, we have no king but Caesar, right? And so the Jews watched as their king was crucified on a Roman cross, and the Jews went on looking for their kingdom and for their coming king, and they're still looking for him today. In fact, I think that's why very soon they're going to find themselves deceived, But what the Jews failed to see was the coming of the age in which we're living today. The coming of the age in which we live today. The Old Testament prophets could not see it. The Jewish scribes and scholars, they never saw this day. We're living in a divine mystery. We're living in a a sovereign parentheses, if you will. What they they were looking for and couldn't see, we we see clearly in a a passage like Isaiah 61, uh, verses 1 and 2. In fact, Jesus would inaugurate his ministry in the synagogue with this passage and say, when he read it, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. But he stopped at a very odd place. And let me read it for you. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And then verse 2 says, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. We know that word favor. We call that grace, God's favor, his unmerited, undeserved favor. To proclaim the the epoch, the era of God's grace, and then there's a comma, and the day of vengeance of our God, a day of wrath. We live in that comma. We live in the comma between the, the proclamation, the inauguration of the era of grace, 
in the day of the vengeance and wrath of God, we're living in a comma in, cha- in chapter 61 of Isaiah, verse 2. And no one ever imagined that that comma would be at least 2,000 years long between the arrival of Messiah and the inauguration of his, his physical kingdom on earth, which is yet to come. And we're waiting for the Lord Jesus to come and establish his kingdom. But while we wait, he rules in our hearts as his people through faith. And, and, and so he, he lives through the body of Christ. He lives through his people, the church. Which is interesting because in the Old Testament, the people of God were known by several metaphors. They were called a vine. They were called a bride in the book of Hosea. Not a faithful bride, by the way, if you've read Hosea. Um, They were called a flock and they were called a kingdom. And then you get to the new covenant, the new Testament, and those same metaphors apply to the, to the new covenant people of God, a vine, his bride, a flock, a kingdom. But then the church is called something in Ephesians that it was never called before. It's called a body. It's called a corpus. You, you know the, the corpus Christi, right? That's Latin for the body of Christ, not just a place in Texas, right? Um, But these same metaphors apply to God's people today. Believers are literally the body of Christ. Um, He dwells in us through his spirit. He energizes his body with life. And as we yield to him and allow him to live through us, then he's accomplishing his will in the world. He's seen through the body of Christ. And this is the mystery of the church as the body that's revealed in the verses of Ephesians. In fact, when we get to chapter three, Paul just goes on this great tirade about how wonderful this mystery is and how it's hidden for ages, and we'll, we'll get there. But the, the point is that you're the body of Christ, right? We're the body of Christ. We're the recipients of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We already saw that. You're saints. You may not feel that this morning, but you are. You're saints. You're faithful. You've received grace and peace from the Father and from the Son. And we, and we read in the, in the earlier verses, you, you have been blessed by the Father, chosen by the Father. He's predestined us to be holy and blameless and adopted into his family in Christ. And, and if, you, if that's confusing to you and you weren't here last week, go back and, and listen to the podcast of last week's sermon. But think with me for just a minute. If you're a parent, if you're a mom or a dad, and you're in the room, think with me about the difference between uh, your, your downtown Everett on a, on a cold January night and the difference between helping a homeless person with something that they need versus feeding your own kids. Uh, just think about the distinctions between those two opportunities. One of those opportunities is, a, is not a bad thing to do and you want to be very intentional about it, but it's really rooted in, well, do I have 20 bucks to spare? Do I have the money and the time right now to engage in this thing? And it's a very in the moment decision versus being a mom or a dad that says, I'm going to be very intentional about planning out like meals and going grocery shopping and thinking ahead. Like I don't want my kids to go hungry. That's a different kind of decision, right? The far more intentionality and planning and forethought given to that decision than being in the moment and having the opportunity to help someone in need, right? And this is the point that Paul's making. One of them is that we are the children of God. The level of intentionality that God has exhibited here in the text is astronomical, He's super intentional about everything that he's already set aside for us. 
And all this done according to the kind intention of his will, the choosing that the father did in order that we might stand before him with no blame and in holiness. He did that in love. And that's a tremendous reality for us. We, we can't lose sight of that. So let's continue together. We unpack this section of chapter one on the blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus. And whereas last week we focused on the blessings related to the father, this week I want us to explore the blessings related to the son. So if you have your Bible or Ephesians chapter one, verses 7 to 12. If you have your mobile device and you want to go to the YouVersion Bible app, you can go to the menu, find the events, and then find Emmaus Road. My notes are there for you to follow. Um, Occasionally, I throw in a a weird graphic of my face uh, just to surprise people, so you just never know what kind of Easter eggs are lurking in the app, so just you're forewarned, okay? Ephesians 1, verses 7 to 12. In him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Let's go back. Look at seven and eight. In Christ, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom, and insight. So, so Jesus has redeemed us. The word redemption, apolytrosis in the Greek, is used 10 times in the New Testament. Redemption is uh, to deliver someone out of captivity or slavery. It's to deliver someone out of captivity or slavery. In the Old Testament, we know that God redeemed his people Israel out of their enslavement in the land of Egypt. Right? That's a redemption in the, in the book of Ruth, Boaz, who is the nearest blood-related kinsman, and so he's, he's qualified to be the kinsman redeemer, he redeems Ruth and, and thereby her whole family, right? They're sustained because he's their redeemer. He purchases, if you will, them out of destitution and restores that family. In Paul's day, Slaves could be redeemed by a payment of ransom, just like uh, hostages, you know, are, are freed by a ransom payment. And so as believers in Jesus Christ, you and I have been redeemed from our bondage to sin. And you go, well, okay, so what was the payment? What, what was the payment made to redeem us as slaves to sin, hostages to death? Well, only the perfect, precious blood of Jesus himself. In fact, Peter would say this in 1 Peter 1. He says, if you call on him as father, he who judges impartially every person's deeds, then conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time in exile, knowing that you were ransomed, there's that word, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited by your forefathers. And you go, great, we were ransomed. What did he ransom us with? Peter says, not with perishable things like silver or gold, 
but you were ransomed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last days for your sake. You who through him are believers in God, who he is raised from the dead and gave glory, gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. So you're ransomed with the blood, the precious blood of Jesus. The writer of Hebrews in chapter two says this. He says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death, Jesus might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And in the process, here's here's the byproduct, deliver all those who through the fear of death were subjected to slavery. So we were hostages, we were slaves, and then Jesus has redeemed us. He has purchased us with his blood. And redemption is a praiseworthy blessing because without it, eternal punishment would be the destiny of every person with no exception. You just can't get around this in the gospel. Like redemption, that that payment of blood to atone for our sins is non-negotiable. You can't work around it at all. Redemption is through the blood of Christ. Without the shedding of blood, scripture says, there's no remission of sins. And we talked about this at length in our first John study this spring. But the doctrine of the atonement, unfortunately, is very much under attack in the church, not just from without, but from within, from those who would call themselves even evangelical Christians. And it's really sad and it's very short-sighted since without the doctrine of redemption, <laughs> they, they wouldn't have a place in the church to even argue about this, right? As I was thinking about it this week, um, I'm, you guys know from the last two sermons ago, I'm very fond of uh, Looney Tunes. I grew up watching Bugs Bunny, and, and, I, and I have this image in my mind, people who call themselves Christ followers who are in the church who attack the atonement and the redemption of Christ by his blood are like Elmer Fudd who's trying to saw off the limb to get Bugs Bunny only to find that he's the one sitting on the limb. You're, you, this is taking you back to your childhood, right? You get that last saw through the limb, and then the limb snaps, and then he's the one that goes falling down. It just cracked me up as a kid, right? Same idea. Uh, you, you just can't go after redemption without sawing off the limb you're sitting on. It just does, it doesn't work. Look at verse nine. God is making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. So then Jesus is not just redeeming us, Jesus is uniting us. He's uniting us. At the fall, things were estranged. All things were separated. But at the cross, all things are being reconciled once more. And things in heaven, things on earth, all of creation is under this curse and longing to be reconciled. In fact, Paul would unpack that idea in Romans 8. Listen to what Paul says about this idea of reconciliation. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time aren't even worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed in us. For the, even the creation awaits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That's us, right? Even creation is groaning, waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, 
in the hope that creation itself would, would be set free from bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This revelation of who we're going to be in the presence of God glorified is so impactful that even creation is going to be affected by this revelation of who we are in Christ Jesus and, and restored. And, and, and he says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, we groan inwardly with this longing as we eagerly await for our adoption as sons, the redemption of these bodies. For that's the hope that we were saved to. Now, now hope that is seen is not hope. If you can, if you can see it, you've got it. You, you, but we don't see that yet. We don't have that yet. He says, but if we hope for what we don't see, then we wait for it with patience. We wait for it with patience. So God is making known here in Ephesians the mystery of his will. And that mystery includes reconciliation and the uniting of all things in Jesus and the revealing of the sons of God, that's us in glory, and the completion of our adoption. This is awesome. I'm, my heart's broken. Jason's getting that right now. He's experiencing some of these things. We can only talk about and like try to conceptualize these things, and he's experiencing in the presence of Jesus. I, I'm just I'm blown away. What it's just been a crazy week in my heart. I'll tell you more about it in a minute. But I, I'm just as I, I keep looking, I keep glancing at the chair, going, "Lucky, right? <laughs> Gosh, look at verse 11 and 12. In Him we've obtained an inheritance." having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So because we are legally part of the family of God, we get an inheritance. We get an inheritance. Now, the the thing about inheritance is you don't get your inheritance until the person who's giving you the inheritance does what? They die. It's part of the cross. God died so that we might gain this inheritance. Jesus is in view in this, in these verses, and he's the one that paid for that inheritance in the saints with his precious blood. He's the one that died for us. And so you, you begin to see how all these ideas are just woven together so intimately. And then this phrase, man, this phrase, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And, and I just know that somebody in the room is going, ah, got you now, Saddy. Predestined according to God's purpose, working all things according to his will. Can I just say to you one podcast last week's sermon? Podcast that, listen again. But then additionally, let me say this, two things. One, Romans 8 is the great parallel passage that gives clarity to this idea. In fact, let me read it to you. Romans 8, 26 to 30. Paul says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know how to pray as we ought to pray. So the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. I mean, we don't even know the right things to ask God for. And so the spirit steps in and says, I'm going to intercede for you. And I'm just going to, I'm going to pray for you with groanings that you can't even understand. And, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God, according to what God wants for us, what is best. And, and then Paul says, and we know that for those who love God, All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, that's not all people, all places at all times. That's a very particular subset of humanity. That's those who love God and who've been called according to his purpose. 
people who respond to the gospel in faith. He says, those people, God is working out all things for their good. And so he says, those who he foreknew, verse 29, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those that he, listen to this, that he predestined, he also called, and those that he called, he also justified, and those that he justified, he also glorified. Here's what Paul's saying. Salvation's a package deal. There's nobody that God justified that he doesn't actually also glorify. There's nobody that ends up in glory that he didn't justify, right? There's, it's all a package that you, you get all of it. You get all of it. So that's number one. Number two, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Well, what does that word mean? It means that God can do whatever he wants because he's God. He can do whatever he wants. So the question is for us, well, what is God pleased to do? What does he want to do? And how do we know that? And the answer to the question is what we're doing right now. We're studying God's word together. We're we're opening it up, reading it, studying it, unpacking his revealed word. And in his revealed word, in Psalm 115, verse 3, we're told that our God sits in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. That's sovereign. That's what the word means. He does whatever he pleases. So there you go, that's sovereignty. God's in heaven, he does what pleases him. Later in the same psalm, verse 16, it says the heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given over to the children of man. So so then God is pleased to give the earth over to mankind and to allow mankind to make decisions for ourselves so we have what we call limited autonomy. We don't have perfect autonomy because we're not all powerful. In other words, we can't do anything and everything that we want to do because we don't have the power to do anything and everything we want to do. I I remember as a kid, I just had this aspiration in life that I wanted to be a Thundercat. And I just could not make myself into a Thundercat. I'm still a little miffed about the whole deal, right? So we're not totally autonomous, but but limited in our autonomy. And and so here's, here's... Here's, I think, the best theologian, uh, the best quote on this issue that I've ever read is A.W. Tozer. And if you've never read A.W. Tozer, Knowledge of the Holy, can I encourage you to grab that? Uh, It's a really short book. And I was going to say it's a short read, but it's not. Because you read like three pages and you have to put it down and go, my brain hurts. Okay? So let me just give you the quote. Here's what Tozer said. He said, here's my view. God sovereignly decreed that man should be free to exercise moral choice. And man, from the beginning, has fulfilled that decree by making his choice between good and evil. And when he chooses to do evil, he is not thereby countervailing the sovereign will of God, but he's fulfilling it. In so much as the eternal decree decided not which choice man should make, but that he should be free to make it. If in his absolute freedom God has willed to give man limited freedom, who is there to stay his hand or say, what dost thou? Man's will is free because God is sovereign. A God less than sovereign could not bestow moral freedom upon his creatures. In fact, he would be afraid to do so. Let me just give you that little last bit again. Man's will is free because God is sovereign. A God less than sovereign could not bestow moral freedom upon his creatures he would be afraid to do so. 
to, to chew, just chew on that. Just chew on that for a while. And while you do that, we're going to leave that for another time, that discussion over the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. We'll come back to it again when there's coffee involved. Praise the Lord for coffee. And then, and then let me see if I can just maybe wrap this up for us and at the same time this morning give voice to my own personal grief this week. I want you to look at the words of Malachi the prophet, the last Old Testament book. In chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, God is speaking to Malachi and to the priests through Malachi. And he says to his priests, those whose job it is to intercede for the people of God and represent them to God and, and whose job it is to stand in the place of representing God to the people, the intercessors, the priests. This is what he says to those people. He says, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. He says some really crummy things about me. And they said, but how have we spoken against you? What have we said? What do we, what do we say? Verse 14, you have said it is vain to serve God. It's not profitable for us. This is, this is a waste of our time. You said, well, what is the profit in keeping his charge and obeying him? Or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? What, what profit is there for us to grieve over sin when we see it? Or when people are grieving and mourning, to, to engage them and to mourn with those who mourn and grieve with those who grieve? What, what, what has that profit us as the priests? You see, one of the things the priests of God were doing, among many other sinful things, was disregarding the role that God had called them to in mourning over sin. They were speaking against God by counting as nothing the role of grief in their personal lives and in the lives of those over whom they had been given responsibility. And so what we take from this and several other passages in the Old Testament is that God wants his priests to not take lightly uh, opportunities to enter into grief and sorrow with those who are hurting and who experience loss. He doesn't want his priests to take that lightly. And, and, and just so you remember, every Christian is a priest of God. We know that from 1 Peter. And so that's you and me, not just the professional Christian standing up front, right? I hate that idea. Like we're all priests of God most high. And what he wants for his priests is, is a heart in each one of us that enters into the grief of the people that he's put around us when they're grieving, that stops what we're doing and enters in to, to, to fellowship with them in grief and to mourn with them. And so we... We've been unpacking these blessings, right? These spiritual blessings of our great God. We've been delighting in these blessings. And all along the way, I've been really careful to say, but it's not yet, right? They're not yet blessings. And what I want to do this morning is just back up from that and amend it and maybe just correct it a little bit to say, uh, they're not yet blessings, but they're also right now blessings in part. And so God's kingdom and his blessings are, a, are a now, but not yet, and that's a tough tension to live with for us. And so, so you go, well, are they really right now blessings in part? Well, let's take a couple and just unpack it. Let's think about holiness. Does God want holiness for you right now? Or is he content for you just to say, you know, hey, pfft, whatever. I'm just going to party hard. Like, party on, Wayne, right? Party on, Garth. And, and, then, and then when I die, then we can deal with the holiness thing. He can give me holiness then. But clearly, that's not what Scripture teaches. It's a, no, I, I would like for you to be holy now. But I recognize as God that that's an incremental change over time. Nobody steps into Christ day one and goes, holy, Right? So that's a, that's a change that's happening. 
So yeah, it's a right now and it's a not yet. Well, think about like um, the blessing of adoption here in the text. Does God want us to treat each other as family and to love each other the way that we would love our own parents and siblings and our own children? Well, in part, yes, he does want that. But he knows that it's something that we grow into as the people of God. And so here, it's, it's great because at Emmaus Road, we use the language of we're a faith family. We talk like that. When, when we, when we uh, talk about ER kids care, we talk about adoption. And, and rather than simply managing our kids for 90 minutes so that they don't die and, and they don't stop breathing, like we, we enter in, we get down on their level, we engage with them so that those children begin to have an impression and an understanding that they're part of a faith family too. Because that's a big deal to God. It's part of the blessings of God. It's the same with all of God's blessings. It's a now and a not yet. All this is just swirling around in my head this week as I was grieving. And I, I, you just need to know, like, I, I was really depressed this week after Jason went to be with Jesus. And I tried to write my sermon. I kind of, uh, trying to uh, be more, uh, a better steward of my time. And so I set an artificial deadline for Tuesday night. I want to have my sermon done by Tuesday night, Wednesday off, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, uh, meetings and all the other things I need to do. But Monday and Tuesday, I try to just focus on the sermon and, and, and I, I couldn't get it, I didn't get it done. And um, I slept a lot and I wasn't motivated and I couldn't think straight this week and I couldn't hold on to a thought. And, and, and then on Friday, I was sitting with Jen and, and when I finally began to weep again, um, what I found was I I'd had a headache for three days that wouldn't go away and when I began to really weep and grieve over Jason, uh, that headache went away because what was happening was holding all that tension in and, and so there was a physical manifestation of the spiritual and emotional grief of my soul and, and as soon as I began to release that, it, it, my, my headache went away and it, and it was only in my grief when I stopped trying to muscle through it and, and just stopped and embraced it and wept again on Friday that the breakthrough came that I needed and all of these thoughts came together in a cohesive way. And God reminded me in that moment of these marvelous truths in Ephesians 1 that are now and not yet. And he reminded me that they're all attached to this wonderful, dysfunctional thing called the body of Christ. We put the fun in dysfunction at Emmaus Road. And, and we remember that when we began the sermon this morning, that the body is a new word picture that's God giving, giving it to us in the context of the new covenant. And that my holiness and your holiness is not being brought about in a vacuum. It's happening in relationship. And, and that our adoption into a family of people is, is a reality whereby every day I need these people in the body of Christ and, and these people, that's you, I'm pointing to you, by the way. I'm just, just so you don't, like, don't duck right now. Like I'm pointing at you. You need me and I need you. It's part of our adoption. And that the spirit in me is redeeming even my sorrow and my grief for his good purposes as I mourn the death of my friend. So I'm sitting there on the front porch Friday afternoon. I'd had a long nap. Uh, and I really didn't want to get up from the nap. I just wanted to like nap on to, into Saturday. <laughs> and I didn't really want to re-engage with life. And I'm sitting there on the porch swing with Jen and we're talking and praying and I realized uh, as I finally articulated the truth that I wasn't actually grieving for Jason. I mean, shoot, dude's got zero issues now. <laughs> My grief was for a woman and her daughter who had found an amazing man whom God was radically changing. 
And that radical change in his life was impacting their lives. And on the horizon for them was the blessing of husband and daddy. And then that, that was suddenly gone. It was gone from them. And that is what's been so grievous to my heart. And so I go back to the scripture and I go, okay, well, what does God's word say about all these blessings? That they're rooted in love. That they're rooted in the kind intention of his will. What is his will in a moment like this? Where where do we look? When, When there's this kind of grief and loss, what is the will of God? Well, Friday night, God began to open his word to me. And I just began to trace his steps. What is his will? What is his heart? The kind intention of his will. Psalm 68 tells us in verses four and five to sing praise to God, sing praise to his name, lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Through the, through the dry places, right, where there's not a lot of provision and lush reality uh, and comfort, he rides through those dry places. And this is exalt before him. And then in verse five it says, father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. I go, yes. Yes, Lord. Flip a couple of pages, and I'm in Psalm 82 suddenly, and in verse 3 and 4, it says, uh, God says, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. I'm seeing this theme. It's the, he's a father to the fatherless. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. And then, I, and then my brain was, oh, what about James chapter 1, verse 27, where James says that the religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. That's not an accident, you realize, right? The, the, the religion that God loves the God the Father loves is to, to minister to orphans and widows in their affliction. He loves that. You go, what's the common denominator for orphans and widows? It's the Father. So God's will for the body of Christ is to be what it's designed to be and for us to wrestle with and, and figure out how to adopt other people in and become their family and to love them as our own, for us to become, in part, a conduit of these blessings that we're reading about and, and, and that have been portioned to us by God, not for our own benefit, but for the sake of others. And then Jesus has to go and say this crazy thing in the Sermon on the Mount, that blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And the beauty of what Jesus is saying in the Beatitude is that those who put their faith in Jesus so as to be saved will ultimately receive wholeness where now there's only brokenness. They will receive healing where right now their hearts are sick with grief. And the tragedy of those who do not turn in repentance and faith is that they will enter into a Christless eternity and never receive in themselves wholeness and healing. And they will only ever carry their sorrows and griefs with them forever and ever and ever and ever in agony. So as priests of God, as the body of Christ, we must learn to mourn and grieve. And, and if we don't learn that, 
then we will be misrepresenting God much like the priests in Malachi's day. Ever since sin broke, God's perfect world, sadness pervades our existence. And there are times when we rejoice and we delight in those times, but we also experience great seasons of mourning and loss and extended seasons of grieving. And and, and then through Isaiah, um, God promised that Messiah would come to comfort those who mourn. We've come full circle back to Isaiah 61 and the comma that we live in. Let me read the passage again so you get the full picture of where we've come. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, Jesus said, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to comfort the brokenhearted, to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be set free. He sent me to tell those who are mourning that the time of God's favor has come and also with it the day of God's anger against his enemies. He goes on to say, to all who mourn in Israel, God will give a crown of beauty for ashes, joyous blessing instead of mourning, festive praise instead of despair, and in their righteousness they will be great oaks that the Lord has planted for his own glory. Yet, until the fullness of the kingdom comes to us, we still grieve. And the tragedies of life will at times weigh heavy upon our hearts. But in our grief, we have hope for the future. We also have the Holy Spirit, the comforter, who meets us in our sorrow, who calms our hearts. And you and I are living right now in that comma in Isaiah 61.2. I pray that we be a people that proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the age of grace. God's grace is available. And that the day of his vengeance is coming. Blessed are you who mourn, Jesus said, blessed. Blessings will be yours if you learn to mourn and grieve. That's part of the package deal that was purchased for us at the cross. And we know that our grieving will one day cease just as Jason Parker's grieving has ceased. Can't wait. So let's receive that blessing this morning along with all the other ones with glad hearts as we continue to worship our great king. God, would you give us grace to do that? It's one thing to say those words or hear those words. It's another thing to do it. To go home, to go back into our lives, to go back into our work week, uh, to think about trying to manage our kids and to also think intentionally about how do we enter into grief with those who are grieving and mourn with those who are mourning. And then when tragedy comes in our own lives, how we process our own grief. God, we need your grace, we need your wisdom, we need your word made alive to our hearts to know how to navigate these days. We're just a little church, still young, still new, starting out. Would you give us grace, fill us with your Holy Spirit, pour out love and comfort upon us, meet us in our despair and brokenness and bring healing and wholeness to your people, Lord, we pray. We ask all these things in the precious, matchless name of Jesus.